0: Thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Welcome to this episode of God, Law, and Liberty, and I'm delighted to have you with me today. Today, I want to cover some material that puts two things together that, to be honest, I never connected before, or not at the level at which I'm going to connect them today. And I hope you will find it as helpful to you as it was to me. You know, sometimes we don't, or at least I don't, do a great job of connecting theology to real-life situations, or in what I'm about to cover, connecting fundamental doctrines Of Christianity that may roll off our tongues with real life situations, particularly when it comes to politics and to law. And today I want to make a connection between a fundamental Christian doctrine and transgender legislation, particularly the way the prohibition on gender affirming care was presented and defended in Tennessee. I'm going to be using a few audio clips from the debate on the Tennessee House floor in regard to that legislation that passed and has now gone on to our governor, because I believe it will help demonstrate this connection between doctrines we hold to as declaring what the gospel is and how we actually proceed and argue things in the public square. Now, if you're not in Tennessee or in another state, this is still relevant to you, for one thing these bills are passing in a number of states. I just saw the other day that I think maybe North Carolina had passed a bill. Utah's passed a bill. Alabama's already passed a bill. As you know, Texas already passed a bill. Others will be passing the bills. And even then, when we're just addressing the transgender issue, even perhaps in a state where it gets support, the question is, how do Christians speak to that issue without undermining the gospel? Now, what I'm going to discuss today is that the way this is often defended by conservatives or Christians represents what I'm going to call a cosmological shift that's taken place in our country and in our legal and legislative structures. And I'm praying that what you're going to hear today will demonstrate How the doctrine I'm going to cover informs a critical aspect of our legal structure. And hopefully, in doing that, you'll see how we have deviated from the intended structure and from biblical Christianity. But here is the really, really critical point this shift, this cosmological shift, as I'll call it, demonstrated in the way the legislation was discussed and defended here in Tennessee. Effectively makes the gospel revealed in the pages of Scripture from beginning to end meaningless. Now, I'm not saying that anybody in the Tennessee House of Representatives set out to do that or intended to do that or even knew they were doing it. But I want you to listen to what's said and help at least draw some connections, whether they were intended or not, and I doubt they were. We need to appreciate the implications of what we're doing and how we're doing it. But if it is intentionally embraced and espoused by Christians, I think you're going to find out that it actually is by many Christians today. It is what the Apostle Paul called in 2 Corinthians 11:4, and in Galatians chapter 1, verses 6, 8, and 9, another gospel. It's not the gospel of the Bible. And that's why I think today's episode is so important. We don't need to be unconsciously or unwittingly shooting ourselves in the feet and undermining the gospel message. So, this is very serious business that we're going to cover in the next several minutes. And if you find it helpful and insightful, please let me encourage you to share it with others. Now, with that long introduction, let me tell you how this connection that I'm going to talk about today came home to me again it, it it's not one that I, I had connected in any strong way it was in the back of my head because I had heard Francis Schaeffer talk about it I've heard Martin Lloyd Jones preach about it it's a psychological gospel or as I think Al Muller more recently put it a therapeutic gospel but how it came to me, and the connection to law was quite interesting. I was reading a book by J. Gresham Machen entitled, What is Faith? It was published in 1925. By the way, you can find a PDF of it online at monergism.com. That's monergism.com. And I got to the sixth chapter, and in this discussion of faith, he got into talking about legal systems and what is law. So The doctrine that I'm going to be talking about today is the doctrine of justification by faith, and it's expounded in that sixth chapter of Mention's little book under the title, Faith and Salvation. As I said, it was surprising to me in a book on faith and salvation to see the relationship between the doctrine of justification by faith and the way we approach transgenderism today when we're speaking about law. Now, with respect to this doctrine of justification by faith, let me first cover, or I guess I could say what I need to cover, is one of the objections that Machen said he was hearing as early or as far back as 1925. And it was this he said, Justification is a forensic term, it is borrowed, that is, from the law courts. And the objectors, he said, think it smells of musty volumes bound in legal paper, and we moderns prefer other sources for our figures of speech. We prefer to conceive of salvation in a vital rather than in a legal way. Now, that's a very important statement. It may relate to a lot of what's been going on at Asbury College with the revival sort of taking place there. I don't know. I haven't followed it very carefully, but. Machen says this, Justification by faith is by no means all of the Christian doctrine of salvation. It has, as its other side, the doctrine of regeneration or the new birth. What the Christian has from God is not merely a new and right relation to him in which the guilt of sin is wiped out, that would be the doctrine of justification by faith, but also a new life in which the power of sin is broken. The Christian view of salvation is vital as well as forensic. Now, I'm going to come back and talk about this forensic and vital and legal in just a moment, but I want to continue with what he next says. This modern way of thinking errs in being one-sided. It errs, not indeed in insisting upon the vital aspect of salvation, but in maintaining that salvation is only vital. Now, what's he talking about here? He's talking about what Kuyper has expressed in different words that we've talked about in previous podcasts, the difference between objective religion and subjective religion, between religion for the sake of man and religion for the sake of God. So what what Machen is talking about when he speaks to this issue of Salvation is vital. He's referring to the subjective side of it, its effect on the person. And what Machen is saying is that salvation is first objective, then subjective. It's not subjective only. So here's how Kuiper talked about it, and I think I talked about it in last week's episode. Kuyper said, quote, true religion has its human and subjective side. The subjective, again, being what Manchin calls the vital way. Kuyper continued True religion does not dispute the fact that religion is promoted, encouraged, and strengthened by our disposition to seek help in time of need and spiritual elevation in the face of sensual passions. But it maintains that it reverses the proper order of things to seek in these accidental motives the essence, and the very purpose of religion. Now, when I started learning more theology in the last oh, six or eight years, I ran into this word accidental, and we tend to think of accidental as, you know, you uh, ran over the curb with your car or something. But in theology, accidental is referring to a property of something, or an attribute, that's not necessary to its essence. And that a deviation of that characteristic does not affect its essence. Herman Bobbitt, who I've often referred to on this podcast, put it this way, that all things are accidental. All created things, I should say, are accidental. Not that God didn't intend them to be what they are, but they are what they are only because God intends them to be such. And He could have made other things or could have added other things. This is why the Protestant Reformers were insistent that all things are and must be for the glory of God. Everything, as Bodkin said, answers to the purpose God has set for it. It is good because God called it so. It is good because it is servable to the revelation of God's perfection. Creation is bearing witness to the glory of God. It is revealing to us the glory of God. But for our sin, we we don't see it. And Bommet continues, and to the person who regards it as so, that the world and all things in it Are serving to reveal God to us, he says, it's also good because it makes known to him the God who to know is eternal life. So, in other words, male and female could have been made somewhat differently, okay? But they were made the way they were. They exist because they are revealing something to us about God. So, When Kuiper talks about things accidental, he's referring to those things that are not essential to what things are that could have been different. Now, hear me. Mankind could not be different in the sense of we're male and female, but God could have created something that looks different from what we have. And it would, too, be serviceable to God's purpose. To reveal himself. In other words, the creation that we see did not exhaust the knowledge and the wisdom of God. That's important to remember. So, our bodies could have been something other than they are, but they are what they are because they serve God's purpose of revealing himself so that we might know him. So, transgenderism is essentially an attack. On the revelation of God, by destroying the revelation of God, that we should see in male and female, and confusing and blending it, and blurring it, and thus is an attack first and foremost on God. But anyway, I'm getting off the subject. So, uh, but I wanted to bring it up in case I refer to, you know, uh, accidental properties or accidents. Um, in, in future broadcasts, you'll have some conception of what I'm talking about. But I want to go back to what Kuiper said in relation to Machen's categories of vital religion versus justification by faith. In other words, the subjective versus the objective of justification by faith, which is, namely, that we have sinned against a holy God, and we are guilty, and we're in trouble. Objectively, we need to be justified before God in his tribunals. So, Kuyper continues, A true Christian values all of these as fruits which are produced by religion, or as props which give it support, but he refuses to honor them as the reason for its existence. As we were just quoting Babak there, all things exists for the sake of revealing the glory of God. Kuyper continues, Of course, religion as such produces also a blessing for man, but it does not exist for the sake of man. It is not God who exists for the sake of his creation. The creation exists for the sake of God, for as the scripture says, he has created all things for himself. Now, let's return to Manchin and the objection the vitalists bring to this musty legal concept of justification and their search for a more modern expression of what it means to be made right with God. And he writes this, When the vital aspect of salvation is separated from the forensic aspect, the guilt before God and the need for justification for forgiveness for salvation— the consequences are serious indeed. What really happens is that the whole ethical character of Christianity is endangered or destroyed. To be interested in the new life, this vital subjective aspect of it, Machin says, to the exclusion of the new standing before God is to deprive. The new life of its moral significance. That's where we get the antinomians. I'm freed from the law. There are no no more standards for what it means to to behave rightly, to live in God's world. I'm free from the law. Okay? It it removes the moral significance for subjective feeling or experience. Mason continues. For it is only as judged in accordance with some absolute norm of righteousness that the new life differs from the life of plants or beasts. See, we were made in the image of God, and we are ethical beings. And then Machen writes this, which is the key. It's what really turns our thinking about justification by faith to what's going on in the Tennessee House of Representatives and maybe going on in your state. Here's what he says. The ultimate question, however, that is involved in the objection concerns the validity of retributive justice. The objection regards as derogatory to the doctrine of justification the fact that it uses the language of the law courts. I want to stop right here and highlight a couple of things. Firstly, when the ethical character of Christianity is removed, salvation, in a biblical gospel sense, is not needed. We're going to talk about what's substituted in just a moment, but it's not needed. Secondly, and related to the first, is the word that he uses, retributive justice. The concept of retributive justice is the key to the whole doctrine of justification by faith. And when you grasp that, you will see in the audio clips from the House floor debate that I'm going to play in a moment, how the salvation the gospel offers is eliminated, and we're espousing, though unwittingly, another gospel. Now, my friend Cal Beisner, the founder and leader of the Cornwall Alliance, an organization I recommend to you if you're concerned about issues of biblical environmental stewardship, has written that there's five kinds of justice in the Bible, of which retributive justice is just one form. But I'm not going to get into that today. Um, But in this instance, I believe Machen is using the word retributive justice in the broad sense meaning the distribution of rewards and punishments in general. So, for example, Cal mentions vindicative justice. Vindicative justice is when the judge decides that you're right. Okay, But that vindicative justice is a part of the distribution of rewards and punishments. So I think that that broader concept is what Machen's talking about. Then Machen says this, but is that fact really derogatory to the doctrine? We, for our part, think that it is not, for the simple reason that we hold a totally different view of the law courts from the view the objector holds. Now we're starting to get into, see how this doctrine of justification by faith informs our view of the law courts and how we We operate them, what their purpose is. Machen continues, At this point, as at so many other points, there is revealed the far-reaching character of the disagreement in the modern religious world. The disagreement concerns not merely what is ordinarily called religion, but it concerns almost every department of human life. Wow. In particular, he says, it concerns the underlying theory of human justice. So if we get this understanding of being just before God wronged, and we don't see it in the objective category of legal terms of justification, of redistributive justice, of rewards and punishments, then then we're going to get our system of justice wrong. And this is where I want us to transition now to the way the transgender legislation was addressed and how it relates to this ethical component as well as the justice component of the doctrine of justification by faith. So Manchin says, here are the two views the older view and what he just referred to as the modern religious worldview of justification that affects the way we look at our law courts and our legal system. He says, according to the modern view, our courts of law are concerned only with the reform of the criminal or the protection of society. Now, Think about what's happening in our penal system. We've gone from a penal system to correctional institutes. The word indicates this change that we're here to correct the person, not really provide just punishments for wrongs committed. Okay, We have drug courts because we're really more interested in helping the drug addict recover than... We are the punishment that's due, okay, for stealing something or killing somebody for the drugs. Now, it's not to say that we shouldn't be concerned about correction or reform, but that's that's not a legal function. That's a grace function, that's a, a salvation function, okay? So Machen continues, in connection with our courts then, the modern religious person thinks the whole notion of retributive justice must be given up. Okay? Now, with respect to this modernist view, Machen says, back of that remains a basis of eternal significance in every true court of law. And here's how he words that. We have put trivial considerations of consequences in place of the majesty of the law. Men are complaining of the result, but are not willing to deal with the cause. They are complaining loudly of the growth of criminality, or in this case of transgenderism. Right? They are feverishly filling statute books with all sorts of prohibitions, That's what our states are busy doing. They're trying their best to prevent the disintegration of society. That's what they're doing. And then he says this damning statement, but the whole effort is really quite vain. The real trouble does not lie in the details of our laws, but in the underlying conception of what law is. So our conception of the law of God and our guilt before the law of God, informs our conception of what law is in the human courts and the nature of wrongs in the human courts. So this is why he's saying the, these are issues of eternal significance. If, if what we are doing with human law and in human courts is not parallel to, does not correspond to, does not flow from, this eternal law and eternal system of retribution then we're going to wind up in a mess and we'll have lost the notion of justification by faith and salvation and we will have substituted a different problem with a different solution now with that said then i want to play for you some of the clips of the legislator who was proposing and defending the transgender legislation in Tennessee. So here's the first clip. And by the way, pardon the sound. It's recorded in a big high vaulted marble chamber or granite chamber with lots of noise going on in the background, but I think you can hear it.
1: When you start cutting off body parts of a child because you're telling them that somehow or another there's something wrong with their body and they already think that... It is dangerous, it is destructive, and I will say it, it is evil. What those children need is love and support, mental health treatment, and time. Because in most circumstances, these teenage children whose bodies are changing so rapidly, they need time to determine how they feel about that change. Everybody on this floor is a recovering teenager, those years are tough. Your body's changing. You may or may not have felt comfortable about that when you were going through it, but when a child has gender dysphoria or body dysphoria, when they are uncomfortable with their appearance, the worst thing that you can possibly do is say, well, if we just start cutting off body parts or giving you medication that was never designed for this, that will alter your body forever, that's the worst thing you can do. And that's not just me saying that. That's every legitimate scientific study on this. Because scientific evidence has not shown that cross-sex medical treatments are beneficial to children or adolescents. In fact, there is evidence of harmful impact. Consequently, a growing number of authoritative scientific agencies do not recommend such treatments. Instead, they recommend counseling and watchful waiting for gender-confused youth.
0: Okay. Now, there's much in that statement. About which I would agree. I think it is evil to intentionally inflict harm on a healthy, functioning body part. I agree that teenagers and kids have lots of confusions and discomfort about their body and how they look compared to other people. That's quite normal. We probably all felt that way. Uh, The worst thing you can do when your emotions and hormones are bubbling in crazy fashions, as he said, is to start cutting off body parts or trying to stop your body from healthily growing. But notice that it's couched in terms of what you need is mental health treatment. And we're going to look to what the doctors in the medical community say for how you should address these feelings. What's really left here is we've we've put these feelings into a subjective category to be addressed by mental health practitioners and not in the context of let's understand what God has said about the truth regarding your body and bring your thoughts in alignment with the Word of God, to be conformed by the renewing of your mind. Bring your subjective feelings in line with the Word of God. Now, maybe these mental health practitioners and mental health treatments he's referring to would be with a pastor who would tell the child the truth, but that's not who he's referring to, and that's not who he's citing for these medical reports. You see. Now let's let's go to yet a second clip.
1: Again, they need mental health treatment, they need love and support, and many of them need time.
0: So again, we come back to we need love, sure, we do need love, but love is in part telling people the truth. Telling people the truth in as gracious a way as possible. But the truth and the truth is found in Jesus Christ. The truth is found in the Word of God. And mental health counselors, who are not also spiritual counselors in the biblical sense that Machen and Kuyper were talking about, are not going to really deal with the problem that's there. We will stop, perhaps, the procedures. We'll stop the harms. But, but the reason that we have all this sense of shame is we don't, we don't feel like we fit in the world. And we won't fit in the world unless we fit in the world as God created it and as it's intended to be. And when we come to peace with God, then we begin to fit into the world because he begins to renew and recreate us so that we fit as we were designed and intended to fit. Now, let's play one last clip.
1: What we are dealing with here are issues of the heart, issues of the mind, mental health diagnosis of gender dysphoria and body dysphoria that hits little boys and little girls alike. And again, the the scientific studies on that shows that mental health treatment, love and support for those children, and yes, just time, many times allows those children to live a full life. And when they become adults, they can pick their path on whatever they would like to do as adults.
0: Okay, so there we see again mental health, mental health treatment, time, okay, but but notice what what we're also saying. When you get to be an adult then, it would be okay to cut your body parts off? I mean, is that true? Is that what we would be saying? I would hope not. I mean, yes, the state needs to intervene in in keeping minors from doing things that That they may not have the judgment to understand and appreciate, but shouldn't the state say that it's wrong for any doctor to destroy the health of another person and keep their body from functioning in the way it's designed? You see, this, this, this becomes sort of a dualism here. It becomes a subjectivism. You still get to decide what it is you think and you feel when you get to be an adult because there's not really anything here but just mental health issues. Now, I'm not trying to accuse the sponsor of saying that's what he believes. I know the sponsor. He did call it evil. But I hope you see what is happening here. This is this therapeutic way of looking at law. We're trying to deal with therapies till people can make their own decisions and be the autonomous beings that they think they are as minors, but they can be when they're adults. We don't really need a savior because this discomfort, this dysphoria, this disjunction is because we're out of lockstep with God and the way he's actually made his world to work. We just need therapy. And that's the substitution of a therapeutic, psychological gospel, which is not the gospel for a real gospel. And I hope today you've now seen how this doctrine of justification by faith in the theological, biblical, spiritual realm has to inform how we understand law and the function of law courts and legislators. And I hope you'll join me again next week for the next episode of God, Law, and Liberty. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.factennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.